Chapter 21 Augustus Top Lady A perfect orchestra contains many different musical instruments. Each of these instruments has its own merit and value, but some of them are very unlike others. Some of them are dependent on a player's breath, and some on the skill of hand. Some of them are large, and some of them are small. Some of them produce very gentle sounds, and some of them very loud. But all of them are useful in their own place and way. Composers like Handel, Mozart, and Mendelssohn find work for all. There is work for the clarinet as well as for the trumpet, and work for the violin as well as for the organ. Separately and alone, some of the instruments may appear harsh and unpleasant. Combined together and properly played, though, they fill the ear with one mighty volume of harmonious sounds. Thoughts such as these come across my mind when I survey the spiritual champions of eighteenth-century England. I see among the leaders of religious revival in that day men of remarkably varied characteristics. They were each, in their way, important instruments for good in the hands of the Holy Spirit. From each of them sounded forth the Word of God throughout the land with no uncertain sound. Yet some of these good men were uniquely blended, unusually constructed, and oddly put together. To no one, perhaps, does the comment apply more thoroughly than to the subject of these remarks, the well-known hymn-writer Augustus Toplady. I would not think that any account of English religion in the eighteenth century was complete that did not provide some information about this remarkable man. In some respects I boldly say that not one of his contemporaries surpassed him, and hardly any equaled him. He was a man of rare grace and gifts, and one who left his mark very deeply on his own generation. For soundness in the faith, single-mindedness, and devotedness of life, he deserves to be ranked with Whitefield, Grimshaw, and Romaine. Yet with all this, he was a man in whom there was a most extraordinary mixture of grace and weakness. Hundreds, unhappily, know much of his weaknesses, who know little of his graces. In the following pages I will try to provide a few materials for forming a proper estimate of his character. Augustus Montague Toplady was born at Farnham in Surrey, on November 4, 1740. He was the only son of Major Richard Toplady, who died at the Battle of Carthagena shortly after the birth of Augustus, so that he never knew his father. His mother's maiden name was Catherine Bates, of whom nothing is known except that she had a brother who was rector of St. Paul's, Deptford. About the history of the family I can discover nothing. I can only conjecture that some of them must have been natives of Ireland. I must freely confess that few spiritual heroes of the eighteenth century have suffered more from the lack of a good biographer than Augustus Toplady. Whatever the reason, a real biography of the man was never written. The only memoir of him is as meagre a production as can possibly be imagined. It's only fair to remember that he was an only child and that he died unmarried, so he had neither brother, sister, son, or daughter to gather up his writings and other information. Moreover, he was one who lived much in his study and among his books, spent much time in private communion with God, and seldom went into society. Like Romain, he was not what the world would call a social man. He had very few close friends, and was probably more feared and admired than loved. 
The result is that there is hardly any man of his caliber in the eighteenth century of whom so very little is known. The main facts of Augustus Toplady's life are few and are quickly told. He was brought up by his widowed mother with the utmost care and tenderness, and throughout his life he retained a deep and grateful sense of his obligations to her. For some reason that we do not now know, she appears to have settled at Exeter after her husband's death. It is because of this move that we can probably trace her son's later appointment to churches in Devonshire. Young Toplady was sent at an early age to Westminster School, and he showed considerable ability there. After passing through Westminster, he was entered as a student of Trinity College, Dublin, and he earned his Bachelor of Arts degree. He was ordained a clergyman in the year 1762. Shortly after his ordination, he was appointed to the parish of Blagden in Somersetshire, but was not there long. He was then appointed to Venn Ottery with Hartford in Devonshire, a small parish near Sidmouth. He exchanged this post in 1768 for the rural parish of Broad Hembury near Honiton in Devonshire, a position he retained until his death. Because of his health, he moved from Devonshire to London in 1775, and for a short time became the preacher at a chapel in Orange Street, Leicester Square. He seems, however, to have derived no physical benefit from the change of climate, and he continued to decline in health until he died in the year 1778 at the early age of thirty-eight. The story of Top Lady's inner life and religious history is simple and short, but it presents some features of great interest. The work of God seems to have begun in his heart when he was only sixteen years old, under the following circumstances. He was staying at a place called Coddy Main in Ireland, and was there led by God's providence to hear a layman named Morris preach in a barn. The text was Ephesians 2.13, You who once were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. The sermon came home to young top lady's conscience with such power that from that time he became a new man, and an absolute professor of living Christianity. This was in August 1756. Later in life he frequently referred to the circumstance of his conversion with special thankfulness. He said in 1768, It is strange that I, who had so long sat under the means of grace in England, should be brought near to God in an obscure part of Ireland, amid a handful of God's people who met together in a barn, and under the ministry of one who could hardly spell his name. Surely it was the Lord's doing, and is marvellous. The excellency of such power must be of God, and cannot be of man. The regenerating Spirit breathes not only on whom, but likewise when, where, and as He wills. Although converted and made a new creature in Christ Jesus, Top Lady does not seem to have come to a full knowledge of the gospel in all its perfection for at least two years. Like most of God's children, he had to fight his way into full light through many defective views, and was only slowly brought to being more completely established in the faith. His experience in this matter is similar to that of the vast majority of true Christians. Like infants when they are born into the world, God's children are not born again in the full possession of all their spiritual capacity, and it is well and wisely ordered that it is so. What we win easily, we seldom value sufficiently. The very fact that believers have to struggle and fight hard before they get hold of real soundness in the faith helps to make them value it more when they have attained it.
The truths that cost us a battle are precisely those that we grasp most firmly and never let go. Top Lady's own account of his early experience on this point is distinct and clear. He said, Though awakened in 1756, I was not led into a clear and full view of all the doctrines of grace until the year 1758, when, through the great goodness of God, my Armenian prejudices received an effectual shock as I read Thomas Manton's sermons on the seventeenth chapter of John. I will remember the years 1756 and 1758 with gratitude and joy in the heaven of heavens to all eternity. In the year 1774, Top Lady gave the following interesting account of his experience at this period of his life. It pleased God to deliver me from the Armenian snare before I was quite eighteen. Up to that period there was not, I confess it with shame, a more proud and violent freewiller within the compass of the four seas. One instance of my warm and ignorant zeal occurs now to my memory. About a year before divine goodness gave me eyes to discern and a heart to embrace the truth, I was ranting one day in company on the universality of grace and the power of free agency. A good old gentleman, now with God, rose from his chair, came up to me, held me by one of my coat buttons, and mildly said, My dear sir, there are signs of spirituality in your comments, though tinged with an unhappy mixture of pride and self-righteousness. You have been speaking much in favor of free will, but let us move from arguments to experience. Let me ask you one question. How was it with you when the Lord laid hold on you in effectual calling? Did you have any part in obtaining that grace? No. Would you not have resisted and fought it if God's Spirit had left you alone in the hand of your own counsel? I felt the firmness of these simple but powerful questions more strongly than I was then willing to acknowledge. But, blessed be God, I have since been enabled to acknowledge the freeness of His grace and to sing what I trust will be my everlasting song. Scripture, Not unto me, Lord, not unto me, but unto your name give the glory. Psalm 115, 1. From this time to the end of his life, a period of twenty years, Augustus Toplady went onward in his Christian course and never seems to have swerved or turned aside for a single day. His attachment to Calvinistic views of theology grew with his growth, strengthened with his strength, and undoubtedly made him think too harshly of all who favored Arminianism. It is more than probable, too, that it gave him the reputation of being a narrow-minded and sour minister and made many keep their distance from him and disparage him. No one, though, ever pretended to doubt his extraordinary devotedness and single-mindedness, or to question his purity and holiness of life. From one cause or another, however, he appears always to have stood alone, and to have had little fellowship with his fellow men. The result was that throughout his life he seems to have been little known and little understood. But he was most loved, where he was most known. We would very much like to know what young Top Lady was doing between his conversion in 1756 and his ordination in 1762. We can only guess, from the fact that he studied the writings of Thomas Manton before he was eighteen, that he was probably reading much and storing his mind with knowledge, which he turned to good use later in life. However, there is a complete lack of all information about Top Lady at this period of his life. We only know that he took upon himself the office of a minister, not only as a scholar, 
and as one who outwardly professed Christianity, but also as an honest man. He says that he approved of the articles and liturgy of the Church of England from principle, and that he did not believe them simply because he approved of them, but he approved of them because he believed them. We would also like to know exactly where he began his ministry, and in what parish he was first heard as a preacher of the gospel, but I can find nothing about these points. I learned one interesting fact about his early preaching from an interesting letter that he wrote to Lady Huntingdon in 1774. In that letter he said, As to the doctrines of special and discriminating grace, I have much to observe. For the first four years after I was ordained, I dwelt mainly on the general outlines of the gospel in this remote corner of my public ministry. I preached of little else but of justification by faith alone, the righteousness and atonement of Christ, and of that personal holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12:14. My reasons for narrowing the truths of God in this way were these two. I speak it with humiliation and repentance. One, I thought these points were sufficient to convey as clear an idea as was absolutely necessary for salvation, and two, I was partly afraid to go any further. God himself, for none but he could do it, gradually freed me from that fear. As he never at any time permitted me to deliver or even to insinuate anything contradictory to his truth, so he has been graciously pleased, for seven or eight years now, to open my mouth to make known the entire mystery of the gospel as far as his Spirit has enlightened me into it. The consequence of my first plan of operations was that the majority of my hearers were pleased, but only a few were converted. The result of my latter deliverance from worldly wisdom and worldly fear is that multitudes have been very angry, but the conversions that God has given me reason to hope He has worked have been multiplied. Thus I can testify to, as far as I am concerned, the usefulness of preaching predestination or, in other words, of tracing salvation and redemption to their first source. A story told by Top Lady himself deserves repetition as an interesting illustration of the habits of clergymen at the time when he was ordained, and of his superiority to the habits of his contemporaries. He said, I was buying some books in the spring of 1762, a month or two before I was ordained, from a very respectable London bookseller. After the business was over, he took me to the furthest end of his long shop, and said in a quiet voice, Sir, you will soon be ordained, and I suppose you have not stored up a very great supply of sermons. I can supply you with as many sets as you want, all original, very excellent ones, and for not much cost. My answer was, I will certainly never be a customer to you in that way, for I am of the opinion that the man who cannot or will not make his own sermons is quite unfit to be a minister. How could you think I would buy ready-made sermons? I would much sooner buy ready-made clothes. His answer shocked me. No, young man, don't be surprised that I offered you ready-made sermons, for I assure you I have sold ready-made sermons to many bishops in my time. My reply was, My good sir, if you have any concern for the credit of the Church of England, never tell that news to anybody else forever. The manner of Top Lady's life during the fifteen or sixteen years of his short ministry can be gathered from a diary that he wrote in 1768 and continued for about a year. This diary is a far more interesting record of a good man's life than such documents ordinarily are, 
and it gives a very favorable impression of the writer's character and habits. It leaves the impression that he was primarily a man of one thing and was entirely consumed with his master's business, much alone, keeping little company, and always either preaching, visiting his people, reading, writing, or praying. If the diary had been kept up for a few years longer, it would have thrown immense light on many things in Top Lady's ministerial history. But even in its present state, it is the most valuable record we possess about him, and there seems no reason to doubt that it is a reasonably accurate picture of his way of living from the time of his ordination to his death. So little is known of the particular events of the last fifteen years of Top Lady's life that it's impossible to do more than give a general sketch of his activities. He seems to have attained a high reputation at a very early date as a dedicated supporter of Calvinistic opinions and a leading opponent of Arminianism. His correspondence shows that he was on close terms with Lady Huntingdon, George Whitefield, William Romaine, John Berridge, John Gill, Ambrose Searle, and other eminent Christians of those times. But how and when he formed acquaintance with them, we have no information. Beginning in 1768, his pen was constantly employed in defense of evangelical religion. His early habits of study were kept up with persistent diligence. No man among the spiritual heroes of the eighteenth century seems to have read more than he did, or had a more extensive knowledge of doctrine. His bitterest adversaries in controversy could never deny that he was a scholar, and an accomplished one. Indeed, we can sincerely question whether he did not shorten his life by his habits of constant study. In a letter to a relative, dated March 19, 1775, he wrote, Though I cannot entirely agree with you in thinking that extreme study has been the cause of my late illness, I must yet confess that the hill of learning, like that of virtue, is in some instances climbed with labor. But when we get a little way up, the lovely prospects that open to the eye make infinite amends for the steepness of the ascent. In short, I am wedded to these pursuits as a man agrees to take his wife, for better, for worse, until death do us part. My thirst for knowledge is literally inextinguishable, and if I drink myself into a superior world in this way, I can't help it. I can remark here that one specific feature in Top Lady's character can hardly fail to affect one who thoughtfully reads his writings. That feature is the elevated spirituality of the tone of his religion. There can be no greater mistake than to regard him as a mere student and deep reader, or as a stern and dry controversial clergyman. Such an estimate of him is completely unjust. His letters and other writings provide abundant evidence that he was one who lived in very close communion with God and had very deep experience of divine things. Living much alone, seldom going into society, and possessing few friends, he was a man little understood by many people who only knew him by his controversial writings, especially his unflinching advocacy of Calvinism. Yet really, if the truth is told, I hardly find any man of the eighteenth century who seems to have soared so high and aimed so honorably in his personal dealings with his Saviour as Top Lady. There is an unction and quality about some of his writings that few of his contemporaries equaled and none surpassed. I freely admit that he left behind him some writings that cannot be much commended. 
but he also left behind him some that will live in the hearts of all true Christians as long as English is spoken. His writings contain thoughts that breathe and words that burn, if any writings of his age did. It should never be forgotten that the man who penned them was lying in his grave before he was thirty-nine. The last three years of Top Lady's life were spent in London. He moved there in 1775 as a result of medical advice, under the idea that the moist air of his previous pastorate was harmful to his health. Whether the advice was good or not can be questioned, but at any rate the change of climate did not do him any good. Little by little the insidious disease of the chest under which he labored made progress and took away his strength. He was certainly able to preach at Orange Street Chapel in the years 1776 and 1777, but it is equally certain that throughout this period he was gradually drawing near to his end. He was probably never more completely appreciated than he was during these last three years of his ministry. A refined London congregation, such as he had, was able to value gifts and powers that were completely thrown away on a rural parish in Devonshire. His reservoir of theological reading and clear doctrinal statements were properly valued by his metropolitan hearers. Humanly speaking, if he had lived longer, he might have done a mighty work in London. However, he who holds the stars in his right hand and knows best what is good for his church saw fit to soon withdraw him from his new field of usefulness. It seemed as if he had come to London only to be known and to be highly valued and then to die. The closing scene of the good man's life was remarkably beautiful, and at the same time highly characteristic. He died as he had lived, in the full hope and peace of the gospel, and with an unwavering confidence in the truth of the doctrines that for fifteen years he had advocated both with his tongue and with his pen. About two months before his death, Augustus Toplady was greatly troubled when he heard that he was reported to have withdrawn from his Calvinistic beliefs and to have expressed a desire to recant them in the presence of John Wesley. He was so much moved by this rumor that he resolved to appear before his congregation once more and give a public denial to it before he died. His physician objected to his idea, in vain. He was told that it would be dangerous to make the attempt and that he would probably die in the pulpit. Top Lady was not a man to be influenced by such considerations. He replied that he would rather die in the harness than die in the stall. He actually carried his resolution into effect. On Sunday, June 14, in the last stage of consumption, and only two months before he died, he ascended his pulpit in Orange Street Chapel after his assistant had preached. To the astonishment of his people, he gave a short but moving sermon based upon Second Peter 1, 13-14. I think it is right, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. He then closed his address with the following remarkable declaration. It has been actively reported by some malicious and unprincipled people that during my present long and severe illness I expressed the strong desire of seeing Mr. John Wesley before I die and revoking some points connected to him that occur in my writings. I now do publicly and most solemnly declare that I do not have, nor ever had, any such intention or desire.
and that I most sincerely hope my last hours will be much better employed than in communing with such a man. So certain and so satisfied am I of the truth of all that I have ever written, that if I were now sitting up in my deathbed with a pen and ink in my hand, and all the religious and controversial writings I ever published, especially those relating to Mr. John Wesley and the Armenian controversy, whether respecting fact or doctrine, could be at once displayed to my view, I would not strike out a single line relative to him or them. The last days of Toplady's life were spent in great peace. He went down to the valley of the shadow of death with abounding consolations, and was enabled to say many edifying things to all around him. The following recollections, jotted down by friends who ministered to him and communicated to his biographer, can hardly fail to be interesting to a Christian reader. One friend observes, A remarkable jealousy was apparent in his whole conduct as he drew near his end for fear of receiving any part of that honor that is due to Christ alone. He desired to be nothing, and that Jesus might be all and in all. His feelings were so very tender upon this subject that I once unintentionally put him almost in an agony by mentioning the great loss that the Church of Christ would sustain by his death at this particular time. The utmost distress was immediately visible in his countenance, and he exclaimed, What? By my death? No, no! Jesus Christ is able, and will, by proper means, defend his own truths. With regard to what little I have been enabled to do in this way, not to me, not to me, but to his own name, and to that only be the glory. The more his bodily strength decreased, the more vigorous, lively, and rejoicing his mind seemed to be. From the whole tone of his conversation during my visit, he appeared not merely peaceful and serene, but he evidently possessed the fullest assurance of the most triumphant faith. He repeatedly told me that he did not have the least shadow of a doubt in regard to his eternal salvation for nearly the past two years. It's no wonder, therefore, that he so earnestly longed to be finished with this life and to be with Christ. His soul seemed to be constantly looking heavenward, and his desire increased the nearer his death approached. A short time before his death, at his request, I felt his pulse, and he desired to know what I thought of it. I told him that his heart and arteries evidently beat weaker and weaker almost every day. He replied immediately, with the sweetest smile on his countenance, Why, that is a good sign that my death is fast approaching, and blessed be God, I can add that my heart beats every day stronger and stronger for glory. A few days before his departure, I found him sitting up in his armchair, but barely able to move or speak. I spoke to him very softly, and asked if his consolations continued to abound as they had previously done. He quickly replied, Oh, my dear sir, it is impossible to describe how good God is to me. Since I have been sitting in this chair this afternoon, I have enjoyed such a season, such sweet communion with God, and such delightful manifestation of His presence with me and love to my soul, that it is impossible for words or any language to express them. I have had peace and joy unutterable, and I fear not but that God's consolation and support will continue. But he immediately composed himself, and added, What have I said? God may, to be sure, as a sovereign, hide his face and his smiles from me. However, I believe he will not, and if he would, I will still trust him. I know I am safe and secure, for his love and his covenant are everlasting. To another friend, speaking about his dying declaration in the pulpit of his church in Orange Street, he said, 
My dear friend, these great and glorious truths that the Lord in rich mercy has given me to believe, and which He has enabled me, though very feebly, to defend, are not, as those who oppose them say, dry doctrines or mere speculative points. No, being brought into practical and heartfelt experience, they are the very joy and support of my soul, and the consolations flowing from them carry me far above the things of time and sense. So far as I know my own heart, I have no desire except to be entirely passive, to live, to die, to be, to do, and to suffer whatever God's blessed will is concerning me, being perfectly satisfied that as He always has, so He will always do that which is best concerning me, and that He hands out in number, weight, and measure whatever will most advance His own glory and the good of His people. Another of his friends mentioned the report that was spread around of his recanting his former principles. Top Lady replied with some intensity and emotion, I recant my former principles. God forbid that I should be so vile an apostate. He then added, with great apparent humility, and yet I would soon be that apostate if I were left to myself. Within an hour of his death, he called his friends and his servant to him and asked them if they could give him up. Upon their answering that they could, since it pleased the Lord to be so gracious to him, he replied, Oh, what a blessing it is that you are made willing to give me up into the hands of my dear Redeemer and to part with me. It will not be long before God takes me, for no mortal man can live after the glories that God has manifested to my soul. Soon after this, he closed his eyes and quietly fell asleep in Christ. On Tuesday, August 11, 1778, in the 38th year of his age. He was buried in Tottenham Court Chapel, under the gallery and opposite the pulpit, in the presence of thousands of people who came together from all parts of London to honour him. His high reputation as a champion of truth, the unjust misrepresentations circulated about his change of opinion, his effectiveness as a preacher, and his comparative youthfulness, combined to draw forth a more than ordinary expression of sympathy. Scripture, Devout men carried him to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Acts 8, 2. Foremost among the mourners was a young man in the ministry who lived long enough to be a connecting link between the eighteenth century and the next, the well-known and eccentric Roland Hill. Before the burial service began, he couldn't help disobeying one of Top Lady's last requests, that no funeral sermon should be preached for him. He affectionately declared to the vast assembly the love and veneration he felt for the deceased, as well as the high sense he had of his graces, gifts, and usefulness. And so, amid the tears and thanksgivings of true-hearted mourners, the much-abused pastor was gathered to his people. The following passage from Top Lady's last will, made and signed six months before his death, is so remarkable and characteristic that I cannot refrain from quoting it to my readers and listeners. I most humbly commit my soul to Almighty God, whom I honour and have long experienced to be my ever gracious and infinitely merciful Father. Nor have I the least doubt of my election, justification, and eternal happiness through the riches of His everlasting and unchangeable kindness to me in Christ Jesus, His co-equal Son, my only, my assured, and my all-sufficient Saviour. Washed in His propitiatory blood, and clothed with His imputed righteousness, 
I trust to stand perfect, sinless, and complete, and do truly believe that I most certainly will so stand in the hour of death, and in the kingdom of heaven, and at the last judgment, and in the ultimate state of endless glory. I cannot write this last will without expressing the deepest, the most solemn, and the most ardent thanks to the precious Trinity in unity for their eternal, unmerited, irreversible, and inexhaustible love to me, a sinner. I bless God the Father for having written from everlasting my unworthy name in the book of life, even for appointing me to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ my Lord. I adore God the Son for having granted to redeem me by His own precious death, and for having obeyed the whole law for my justification. I admire and revere the gracious kindness of God the Holy Spirit, who converted me to the saving knowledge of Christ more than twenty-two years ago, and whose enlightening, supporting, comforting, and sanctifying agency is, and I doubt not, will be, my strength and song in the hours of my earthly pilgrimage. Having now traced Top Lady's history from his cradle to his grave, it only remains for me to offer some general assessment of his worth and attainments. To do this, I honestly confess, is not an easy task. It's bad enough that his biography is not very satisfactory, but his writings have been edited in such a sloppy, careless, senseless manner, without order or arrangement, that they don't fairly represent the author's merits. Certainly the reputation of great writers and ministers may suffer sadly from the treatment of injudicious friends. If there was ever a man who fell into the hands of the Philistines after his death, that man, as far as I can judge, was Augustus Toplady. I will do the best I can with the materials at my disposal, but I hope my listeners will remember that they are exceedingly meager. As a preacher, while Augustus Toplady may not have attained to the top class of preachers, I would be disposed to assign to him a very high place among the second class of preachers of the eighteenth century. In all probability, his delicate health and weak lungs made it impossible for him to do the things that Whitefield and Berridge did. Constant open air addresses and impassioned extemporaneous appeals to thousands of hearers were entirely out of his line. Yet there is pretty good evidence that he didn't have a low reputation as a pulpit orator, but possessed considerable powers. The mere fact that Lady Huntingdon occasionally selected him to preach in her chapels at Bath and Brighton speaks volumes in itself. The additional fact that he was put forward as one of the leading preachers at one of the great Methodist gatherings at Trevica is enough to show that his sermons possessed high merit. The following notes about preaching, which he records in his diary as having received from an old friend, will probably throw much light on the general essence of his sermons. 1. Preach Christ crucified, and dwell mainly on the blessings resulting from His righteousness, atonement, and intercession. 2. Avoid all needless controversies in the pulpit, except when your subject necessarily requires it, or when the truths of God are likely to suffer by your silence. 3. When you ascend the pulpit, leave your learning behind you. Endeavor to preach more to the hearts of your people than to their heads. 4. Do not adopt much oratory. Seek, rather, to benefit others than to be admired. Examples of Top Lady's ordinary preaching are unfortunately very rare. There are only ten sermons in the collection of his works. Out of these ten, 
the great majority were preached on special occasions, and cannot therefore be regarded as fair samples of his pulpit work. There is a certain absence of fire, animation, and directness in all of them, but in all of them there is an abundance of excellent matter, and a quiet, decided, knock-down, sledgehammer style of putting things, which I can well believe would be extremely effective, especially with educated congregations. The three following extracts may give some idea of how Top Lady was in the pulpit of Orange Street Chapel. Of his ministry in Broad Hembury, we know next to nothing at all. The first extract forms the conclusion of a sermon preached in 1774 at the Lock Chapel entitled Good News from Heaven. I see the elements upon the sacramental table, and I don't doubt that many of you intend to present yourselves at that throne of grace that God has mercifully constructed through the righteousness and sufferings of His co-equal Son. Oh, beware of coming with the one sentiment on your lips and another in your hearts. Take heed of saying with your mouths, We do not come to this your table, O Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, while perhaps you have in reality some secret reserves in favor of that very self-righteousness that you profess to renounce, thinking that Christ's merits alone will not save you unless you add something to make it effectual. Oh, do not be so deceived! God will not be mocked, nor will Christ be insulted with impunity. Call your works what you want, whether terms, causes, conditions, or supplements. It's all the same, and Christ is equally thrust out of His mediatorial throne by these or any similar views of human obedience. If you do not wholly depend on Jesus as the Lord your righteousness, if you mix your faith in Him with anything else, if the finished work of the crucified God alone is not your acknowledged anchor and foundation of acceptance with the Father both here and ever, then come to His table and receive the symbols of His body and blood at your peril. Leave your own righteousness behind you, or you have no business here. You are without the wedding garment, and God will say to you, Friend, how came you here? Matthew twenty-two twelve. If you go on, moreover, to live and die in this state of unbelief, you will be found speechless and excuseless in the day of judgment. The slighted Saviour will say to His angels concerning you, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22, 13-14 My second extract is from a sermon titled, Free Will, preached at St. Anne's Blackfriars in 1774. I know it is growing very popular to talk against spiritual feelings, but I dare not join the call. On the contrary, I adopt the Apostle's prayer that our love to God and the manifestation of His love to us may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all feeling. And it's not an enthusiastic wish on behalf of you and me that we may be of the number of those godly persons who, as our church justly expresses it, feel in themselves the workings of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh, and drawing up their minds to high and heavenly things. Indeed, the great business of God's Spirit is to draw up and to bring down, to draw up our affections to Christ, and to bring down the unsearchable riches of grace into our hearts. The knowledge of this, and earnest desire for it, are all the feelings I pray for. I always want to plead for these feelings, 
knowing that without some experience and enjoyment of them, we cannot be happy living or dying. Let me ask you, as it were, individually, has the Holy Spirit begun to reveal these deep things of God in your soul? If so, give Him the glory for it. As you cherish communion with Him, as ever you value the comforts of the Holy Spirit, endeavor to be found in God's way even the highway of humble faith and obedient love, sitting at the feet of Christ and consuming those sweet, sanctifying communications of grace that are both a pledge of and a preparation for perfect heaven when you die. God forbid that we would ever think lightly of religious feelings. If we do not, in some degree, feel ourselves to be sinners and feel that Christ is precious, I doubt that the Spirit of God has ever been savingly at work upon our souls. My last example will be from a sermon preached at St. Anne's Blackfriars, William Remains Church, in 1770, entitled, A Caveat Against Unsound Doctrine. Faith is the eye of the soul, and it is said that the eye can see almost every object but itself. In the same way, you can have real faith without being able to discern it. God will not despise the day of small things. Zechariah 4, 10. Little faith goes to heaven no less than great faith, though not as comfortably, yet just as certainly. If you come to Jesus simply as a sinner and throw yourself upon His blood and righteousness alone for salvation and the grace and promise of God in Him, you are just as truly a believer as the most victorious saint who ever lived. Amid all your weakness, distresses, and temptations, remember that God will not cast out nor cast off the lowest and unworthiest soul that seeks salvation only in the name of Jesus Christ the righteous. When you cannot follow the rock, the rock will follow you, and will never leave you for a single moment on this side of the heavenly Canaan. If you feel your absolute need of Christ, then on all occasions and in every circumstance you can commit yourself to the covenant love and faithfulness of God for pardon, sanctification, and safety, and you can do so with the same fullness of right and title as a traveller leans upon his own staff, or as a weary labourer throws himself upon his own bed, or as a wealthy nobleman draws upon his own banker for whatever amount he wants. I make no comment on these excerpts. They speak for themselves. I think most Christians will agree with me that the man who could speak to congregations in this way was no ordinary preacher. The hearers of such sermons could never say, The hungry sheep look up and are not fed. I boldly say that the church today would be in a far more healthy condition if it had more preaching like that of Augustus Toplady. As a writer, Toplady's miscellaneous writings on religious topics have never been properly appreciated. His pen seems to have never been idle, and his collected works contain a large number of short, useful essays on a large variety of subjects. Anyone who takes the trouble to examine them will be surprised to find that the worthy pastor was knowledgeable about many things beside the Calvinistic controversy and could write about them in a very interesting manner. Those who look through Top Lady's writings will find short and well-written biographies of Bishop Jewell, Bishop Carlton, Bishop Wilson, John Knox, John Fox, the martyrologist, Lord Harrington, Herman Wistius, Vincent Alsop, 
and Dr. Isaac Watts. He will find a very valuable collection of extracts from the works of eminent Christians and of anecdotes, incidents, and historical passages gathered by Top Lady himself. He will find a sketch of natural history and some curious observations on birds, meteors, animals, and the solar system. These papers, no doubt, are of various merit, but they all show the remarkable activity and richness of the author's mind, and are certainly far more deserving of being republished than many of the reprints of modern days. I will say nothing about Top Lady's family prayers. They are probably so well known that I don't need to recommend them. Of his seventy-eight letters to friends, I will only say that they are excellent examples of the correspondence of the eighteenth century. They are sensible, well-composed, full of thought and matter, and supply abundant proof that their writer was a Christian, a scholar, and a gentleman. I cannot, however, do more than refer to all these productions of Top Lady's pen. Those who want to know more must examine his works for themselves. If they do, I believe that they will agree with me that his miscellaneous writings are neither sufficiently known nor valued. As a controversialist, it is rather difficult to give a proper estimate of Top Lady as a controversialist. In fact, the subject is a painful one, and one that I would gladly avoid, but I feel that I would not be dealing fairly and honestly with my readers and listeners if I didn't say something about it. In fact, Top Lady took such a prominent part in the doctrinal controversies of the eighteenth century and was so thoroughly recognized as the champion and standard-bearer of Calvinistic theology that no memoir of him could be regarded as complete that did not discuss this part of his character. I begin by saying that, in general, Top Lady's controversial writings appear to me to be scriptural, sound, and true in principle. I do not for a moment mean that I can endorse all he says. His statements are often extreme, and he is frequently more systematic and narrow than the Scriptures. In fact, he often seems to me to go further than Scripture. He seems to draw conclusions that Scripture has not drawn, and to settle points that for some wise reason Scripture has not settled. Still, despite all this, I will never hold back from saying that the cause for which Top Lady contended all his life was undoubtedly the cause of God's truth. He was a bold defender of Calvinistic views about election, predestination, perseverance, human weakness, and irresistible grace. On all these subjects, I firmly hold that Calvin's theology is much more scriptural than the theology of Arminius. While, therefore, I repeat that I cannot endorse all the thoughts of Top Lady's controversial writings, I do claim for them the merit of being scriptural, sound, and true in principle. It would be good for the churches if we had much more clear, distinct, and well-defined doctrine in the present day. Vagueness and indistinctness are characteristics of our degenerate condition. I will go further than this. I do not hesitate to say that Top Lady's controversial works display extraordinary ability. For example, his Historic Proof of the Doctrinal Calvinism of the Church of England is a treatise that displays an astounding amount of research and reading. It is a book that no one could have written who had not studied much, thought much, and thoroughly investigated an enormous amount of theological literature. You see at once that the author has completely digested what he has read, 
and is able to concentrate all his reading on every point that he discusses. The best proof of the book's ability is the simple fact that down to the present day it has never been really answered. It has been reviled, sneered at, abused, and held up to scorn, but insult is not argument. The book remains to this hour unanswered, and that is because of the simplest of all reasons it is unanswerable. It proves undeniably, whether people like it or not, that Calvinism is the doctrine of the Church of England, and that all her leading clergymen until Archbishop Lord's time were Calvinists. Top Lady explains all this logically, clearly, and powerfully. No one, I think, could read the book through and not feel compelled to admit that the author was a capable man. However, while Top Lady's controversial writings possess the merit of soundness and ability, I must admit with sorrow that I cannot praise his spirit and language when speaking of his opponents. I am compelled to confess that he often uses expressions about them so violent and so bitter that one feels perfectly ashamed. I regret to say that never did an advocate of truth appear to me so entirely to forget the text, In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, 2 Timothy 2.25, as Augustus Toplady did. Arminianism seems to have precisely the same effect on him that a scarlet cloak has on a bull. He appears to think it impossible that an Armenian can be saved, and never hesitates to class Armenians with Pelagians, Socinians, Roman Catholics, and heretics. He says things about John Wesley that never should have been said. Those who are familiar with Top Lady's controversial writings know well that I am stating simple truths. I will not stain my paper, nor waste my readers' or listeners' time, by supplying proofs of Top Lady's controversial bitterness. It would be very unprofitable to do so. The names he applies to his adversaries are perfectly amazing and astonishing. In fairness, it should be remembered that the language of his opponents was exceedingly harsh, and was enough to provoke any man. It also must not be forgotten that a hundred years ago men said things in controversy that were not considered as bad as they are now because of the different standard of taste that prevailed. Men were likely more honest and outspoken than they are now, and their bark was worse than their bite. However, all these considerations only gloss over the case. The fact remains that as a controversialist, Top Lady was extremely harsh and excessive, and caused his good to be evil spoken of. Romans 14.16. He carried the principle, Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, Titus 1.13, to an absurd extreme. He forgot the example of his master, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, 1 Peter 2.23, and he entirely spoiled the value of his arguments by the violence and unkindness with which he maintained them. Thousands who neither cared nor understood anything about his favorite cause could understand that no cause should be defended in such a spirit and temper. I leave this painful subject with a general remark that Top Lady is a standing beacon to the church to show us the evils of controversy. Scripture, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. Proverbs 17:14. In the multitude of words, there lacks not sin.
Proverbs 10:19. We must never shy away from controversy, if need be, in defense of Christ's gospel, but we must never take it up without careful watchfulness over our own hearts and over the manner in which we carry it out. Above all, we must strive to think as kindly as possible of our opponent. It was Calvin himself who said of Luther, He may call me a devil if he will, but I will always call him a good servant of Jesus Christ. It would have been good for Top Lady's reputation if he had been more like Calvin. When we open our eyes in heaven, we might be amazed to find how many things there were that both Calvinists and Armenians did not completely understand. As a hymn writer, there's only one more point about Augustus Toplady on which I want to say something, and that is his character as a hymn writer. I am thankful to say that this is a point on which I find no difficulty at all. It is my absolute belief that he was one of the best hymn writers in the English language. I'm quite aware that this may seem to be extravagant praise, but I speak intentionally. I believe that there are no hymns better than his. Good hymns are an immense blessing to the Church of Christ. I believe that the last day alone will show the world the real amount of good they have done. They are appropriate for all, both rich and poor. There is an elevating, stirring, comforting, sanctifying effect about a thoroughly good hymn that nothing else can produce. It sticks in people's memories when texts are forgotten. It prepares people for heaven where praise is one of the principal activities. Preaching and praying will one day cease forever, but praise will never die. The makers of good ballads are said to sway national opinion. In the same way, the writers of good hymns are those who leave the deepest marks on the face of the church. Thousands of people rejoice in the Rock of Ages and Just as I Am who know little of Scripture or sound doctrine. Really good hymns are exceedingly rare. There are only a few people in any age who can write them. You can name hundreds of first-rate preachers for every first-rate writer of hymns. Hundreds of so-called hymns fill up our collections of congregational psalmody that are really not hymns at all. They are very sound, very scriptural, very proper, very correct, and very adequately rhymed, but they are not authentic, live, genuine hymns. There's no life about them. At best they are tame, pointless, weak, and watery. In many cases, if written out straight, without lines, they would make excellent prose, but they are not poetry. It might be startling to some ears to hear me say that there are not more than two hundred first-rate hymns in the English language, but as startling as it may sound, I believe it's true. Of all English hymn writers, possibly none have succeeded so thoroughly in combining truth, poetry, life, warmth, fire, depth, solemnity, and unction as Top Lady has. I feel sorry for the person who doesn't know or who knows and doesn't admire those glorious hymns of his that begin with, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Holy Spirit, dispel our sadness. A debtor to mercy alone. Your harps, you trembling saints. Christ, whose glory fills the skies. When languor and disease invade. And deathless principle arise. The writer of these seven hymns alone has laid the church under perpetual debt to him. 
Heretics have been heard whispering rock of ages as if they clung to it when they had let everything else fall. Great statesmen have been known to turn it into Latin as if to perpetuate its fame. The only matter of regret is that the writer of such excellent hymns should have written so few. If he had lived longer, written more hymns, and handled fewer controversies, his memory would have been had in great honor, and people would have been more pleased. It certainly is a strange anomaly that hymns of such remarkable beauty and emotion came from the same pen that produced such harsh, contentious writings. I do not pretend to explain it or to offer any solution. I only lay it before my readers and listeners as a simple fact. To say the least, it should teach us not to be quick in condemning someone before we know all sides of his character. The best saints of God are neither so very good, nor are the faultiest so very faulty as they appear. Those who only read Top Lady's hymns will find it hard to believe that he could compose his contentious writings. Those who only read his contentious writings will hardly believe that he composed his hymns. Yet the fact remains that the same man composed both. Sadly, the holiest person among us is still a very poor, mixed creature. I will leave the subject of this chapter here. I ask my readers and listeners to put a favorable construction on Top Lady's life and to judge him with righteous judgment. I am afraid he is a man who has never been fairly valued and has never had many advocates. Ministers who have these straightforward, clear-cut doctrinal opinions are never very popular. I strongly assert, though, that Top Lady's undeniable faults should never make us forget his equally undeniable virtues. With all his weaknesses, I firmly believe that he was a godly man and a great man who did a work for Christ in the eighteenth century that will never be overthrown. He will stand at the last day in a joyful place, when many people whom the world liked better will be put to shame.